we're blessed again with another opportunity to gather as we are this afternoon. The blessing, of course, of this moment, of this hour, is one that's great indeed. What better way could there be for us to begin a week than this one, on this first day of the week, to give appreciation and thought to some of the sweetness coming from the family of God, the opportunity to lift our collective thoughts in prayer, to sing these encouraging songs of praise and adoration, to give a consideration to a portion, a section of the Word of God. I hope tonight as you take your Bible with you, you'll be turning with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking in that chapter at verses 18 through 20. And as we do that, we'll reflect upon an interesting passage and one that has occasioned no small amount of discussion. As we do all of that, let me invite you to at least begin our lesson with an introductory set of thoughts that I've asked you to consider on the slide that's now before you. The Bible is such an encouraging book. You and I often find our souls in travail. There are things that weigh down our spirit upon this earth as we become somewhat in despair about that which we often see and the choices we sometimes see those around us that they may make. And yet the Word of God says things like this, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. O how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Verse 140 of that same chapter makes this statement. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. As you and I give interest and thought to the word of God tonight, we are going to express that devotion as we give thought to a passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. And I might say that sadly and tragically, there are some who would use certain verses in the Bible as a source for comfort and a source for hope, when in fact these verses do not offer that when they're interpreted properly. And this verse would certainly fall into that category tonight. As you and I close that slide, why don't we set before ourselves some basic rules, some matters of consideration that will prompt our study and will also make our interpretation a far more accurate and precise one. Basic rules for what? What are we talking about in light of this? The idea surrounds the following idea. How do you and I interpret the Bible? That is to say, when we look at a passage, when we read a text, how do you determine that you're interpreting it correctly? There are just a few rules that I would at least offer for your consideration. It's summarized by this slide that's now before you. The first matter that must reside most highly in our thinking is this. We are not reading a book of men. The Bible is the Word of God. And therefore, it must be handled with dignity. It must be handled with seriousness. It must be handled according to the one who authored it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect truly furnished into all good works. As Paul, almost 2,000 years ago now, set before those of that day, the reality that the Word of God is that with which they were dealing, that's a reminder to each of us as well. You'll notice the second point I would invite you to note is this one, that the Bible is true. I understand that there are those who despise it and hate it and wish that it weren't. And many live as if it's not. But we all understand that when given a proper say and given a consideration in light of it, 
we appreciate that it is true. It says that it's true. In John 17, verse 17, the Son of God Himself, and who better would appreciate and know this? Jesus said, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. In Colossians 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, as Paul directed that letter to the Colossian brethren, to them he said, The word of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is true. May you and I then offer as a reminder to ourselves the thought that the matters of men, of course, are subject to fallacy and subject to discrepancy and error, but it is not so with the Word of God. The third point is this one. The Bible is understandable. I realize full well that there are many in the religious community who claim that it's not. Have you ever heard someone say, there are many in, our, in, our, in the religious world who would say, the Holy Spirit must act especially in order to help you understand the Bible. No keener lie was ever told. The Holy Spirit penned the Bible, but He does not act apart from the Word to help some people understand it and others not. The Bible is understandable to all. In Ephesians 3 verse 4, isn't that what the Apostle Paul taught? When ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery. When they read the sacred text, that which presented to them, they would be appreciative of the fact that they could know what that truth was. You'll notice in addition to that, I've asked you to appreciate this passage. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul admonished Timothy of that day, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so... Here was a man, Timothy, who was admonished by diligence, by appreciation of study and consideration. It's possible to rightly divide and appreciate the message connected to the Word of God. The next point is this one. With regard to any passage of Scripture, it is important to be mindful of its context. And by that I mean this, it is not appropriate to take a passage and use it to teach or mean something that was never in the mind of the author or in the mind of those who first heard it. The Word of God, you see, is coherent that way. In fact, I've invited you to note on that slide that no passage, when properly interpreted, can be interpreted in a way to contradict any other. Truth doesn't contradict itself. Truth makes no discrepancies before it. Truth is not susceptible, you see, to those kinds of things. As you and I close that slide, the last matter is this. How important it is to appreciate the message of Bible unity. That is to say, the Word of God itself is a united message. We must never then array one part against another. We must never seek to find something that is in essence a loophole that contradicts another passage. The Bible, you see, is, is a coherent unity. We're not surprised by that because it was written by the same author. If God authored all of it, and 2, Timothy, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 affirm that the Holy Spirit did, then you and I realize that there shall be none of those matters of fallacy or failure. The next slide will develop some of these points in the following way. Why don't we apply them to that passage that's now before us? 
Allow me to read again 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. And as I read this, I would encourage you to listen and see if you can perhaps look upon it and see how some might use it in a way to offer hope and in a way to offer, shall we say, a bit of comfort when in fact it does not offer it. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Now back to the passage and some additional comments. First, as you and I step through that, it's easy to note rather carefully some of the comments of verse 18. In fact, you and I would be quick to put many elements of focus upon them. Christ once suffered for sins. The only perfect one that ever lived. You and I have been subject to and continue to be subject to making poor choices. We find ourselves guilty of sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, to borrow the words of Romans 3.23. And yet we read here about one who suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. The human family, of course, are the unjust ones, you and me. And yet there was one who was just without sin, holy and perfect. No guile found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.21. It was such that in the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't it then a masterful thing that Peter joins that discussion when he says, Christ hath once suffered for sins. There's only one sacrifice appropriate for sins. That's it. In fact, the Hebrew writer highlights that truth again when he highlights in Hebrews 9.26, Jesus offered Himself once for the sins of the world. There will never be another sacrifice. That was God's only offer. But with it, look at what Peter writes next. That He might bring us to God. So the just suffered for the unjust. Why? That He might bring us to God. We could never have approached God without Him. We would never, apart from His sacrifice and the agency of His blood, be able to approach under the great throne of God. The just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And now the verse finishes by saying... Being put to death, Jesus was in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And what an element of rejoicing. It is true He was put to death in the flesh, but isn't the Bible a wonderful note of celebration when it points out that on that beautiful first day of the week, the morning of that day, the tomb was found empty. He was quickened by the Spirit. He was raised. He was resurrected by the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4. All of that, that verse, in many ways it rings with such power and might and majesty. Now we get to the problem. Look at verse number 19. By which also he went 
that he, clearly referring to Christ, and preached unto the spirits in prison. So we seemingly are told, okay, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? Look at verse 20. Which, notice that's a pronoun identifying our spirits, which were sometime disobedient. When once the long suffering of Noah waited to the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water. And so now the passage comes into fuller view. So this same one who, again, as the just, died for the unjust, he was put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who are these? In verse 20, it's the people that perished in the flood. Those who died in the flood, the text says, they were sometime disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So you and I know only eight boarded the ark and only eight were saved in the waters from the waters of that flood. The rest of humanity, however many there were, died. Those are the ones to whom Jesus preached. Now you could probably appreciate as we close that slide that it brings us to this observation. And so let's piece verses 19 and 20 together as it may often be presented. You probably have already appreciated what I'm about to say. There are those who use this passage rather clearly, they think, to teach this. Well, here is a clear-cut case in the Bible where people died. They died lost. They died without the favor of God, and yet Jesus preached to them after they died, they claim, and gave them an opportunity to one more time be faithful. And so there are those that will use this passage to offer a tremendous amount of hope even to someone who dies lost. You might have heard someone say, well, you know they're going to be given another opportunity you know that they're going to have the opportunity because Jesus preached to the spirits in prison, those that died in Noah's day. The Lord preached to them and gave them a second chance. You may notice on that slide before you, we should think pretty carefully about this. Is that what this verse teaches? Does this teach that after they died... These spirits in prison, that is to say, at least by way of interpretation of some, they then were in the prison house of the life beyond this one in the Hadean realm, and Jesus preached to them and gave them the opportunity to one more time obey the gospel. I realize full well that that may well be used as a tremendous source of hope because I think we're all in a position to know how sad it can be when a loved one who is not in good favor with God, passes from this life. Perhaps someone with whom you've spoken and encouraged them, and yet they never made that choice, and they never made the decision to live faithfully. Perhaps that side of our heart would wish for another opportunity. And after all, isn't it true that the Catholic Church and others have even made a rather notable occurrence of preaching about opportunities like it is claimed to be presented here. May I be quick to say this. This passage does not teach that. It does not. 
If you like to make notes in your Bible, please take careful observation. It does not teach that there's an opportunity for Jesus to preach to you after you die, and you die in a state that's lost. The passage does not offer that kind of hope. It does not offer that kind of assurance. In fact, as you'll notice on that slide before you, let's begin to ask a few questions about this. And let's use those principles we learned earlier to aid us to look upon this passage and to ask, what does it teach then? What would be a proper analysis and what would be a keener interpretation consistent with other aspects of the Word of God? May I begin like this? Wouldn't it be fair to say, if it is true that Jesus or any other inspired being preaches to those who've died lost, then nobody will be going to hell. I will assure you, anybody who experiences even a moment of what the rich man did in Luke 16, if given the opportunity to repent, they will do it in a heartbeat. And there will be nobody that will go to hell. None. If it's true that there is some opportunity to respond to what was not responded to in life, nobody will be eternally lost. Of that you and I can be sure. And yet you and I know Jesus said there will be many that will be lost. May I ask how can that be? Don't you know that anybody with even the smallest moment of experience of the torment the rich man was feeling would respond to an opportunity of salvation, and that's all that would be needed. And yet Jesus in Luke 13 said many will be lost. In Matthew 7, He affirmed many there are that shall in fact end up in perdition. Wasn't it true that Paul affirmed the same in the Roman letter? It seems that very idea alone would challenge the typical interpretation of 1 Peter chapter 3. Surely it cannot mean that there's going to be some opportunity for Jesus to preach to people who died lost. Perhaps one more thing. Doesn't it make you wonder that if that interpretation that we may well often hear is true, and Jesus preached to those people, why didn't He preach to all the other lost people of the Old Testament? What about all those that died in various other things? What about those who died in Sodom and Gomorrah? Why didn't He preach to them? What about those who died, you see, journeying toward the land of Canaan, who themselves died in a way that was not consistent with God's will? Why, did he, why was it only mentioned He preached to these few? Why not all the others? Maybe again, that's a good question. Maybe those questions alone would prompt us to look, give a careful, more, more careful view of this passage before us. Near the bottom of that slide, I've invited you to notice just a few other passages before we turn our attention to what does it say. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. The inspired writer there pointed out that at the time of death, the next matter mentioned is judgment. The Hebrew writer seemingly knew nothing about another opportunity to in fact change one's state or status after the time of death. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, Paul would write, speaking again about the nature of that day of judgment, 
He spoke with earnestness about the nature of standing before the judgment bar of Christ. And he said it like this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. May I ask you to listen? In his body, whether it be good or bad. He said body. Once we leave this earth, the body's buried. It's the spirit that's taking place, you see, there in the Hadean realm. It's the spirit that is alive and well in that place. And the fact that Paul said body, we're going to be judged by what took place in the body. That means the way we die will determine our eternal destiny. Not only that passage there, but you and I will recall that unforgettable passage in Luke 16 where Jesus spoke about rich man and Lazarus. You may notice that he said they each died. And you'll notice that they found themselves in very different experiences. Lazarus was in a place of comfort, a place of bliss, a pleasant place. And on the other hand, the rich man found himself in torment. There was a great gulf fixed between them, and there's not the slightest hint that there was any possibility of changing the state in which they were. In fact, the Lord even said that gulf can't be crossed. Does that sound like there's an opportunity? That there's going to be some preaching to the rich man that would allow him to cross over that boundary, if you please? It just doesn't seem to match at all with, again, what some would tell us as it relates to 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20. As you and I close that slide together, why don't we then ask it this way, so what does the passage teach? if it seems to be that it contradicts a whole host of others, if it's interpreted the way some maybe have been of an appreciation to interpret it, then what does it say? May I offer you the thoughts on this slide that's now before you? As I read parts of it again, notice again that the inspired writer said, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So that word Spirit is an identification of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit through the operation of that resurrection moment that in fact quickened the, 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 nature, the, the consideration of the Lord. But notice the next verse, "...by which also He went." You may note before, I cast a spotlight on the words, He went. I conveniently left out the first three because quite often in that analysis, there are others who do the same. He went. But did you notice? It's by which He went. That which is a reference to the Spirit. So through the agency of the Spirit, the Lord's preaching was being done. We'll ask in a moment the time frame. But may we not lose sight of the fact that phrase by which is a part of the text. It's by the agency of the Spirit that this particular means of preaching took place. Not only that, as you'll notice on the slide, can we not pause long enough to remember in our case today how blessed we are to have what the Spirit has provided. May I be so strong as to even say it this way, any faithful preacher is going to be able to proclaim that which He does by virtue of what the Spirit has made available. That is to say, it'll be through the agency of the Spirit. 
because any faithful preacher is preaching what the Spirit wrote. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, again, read like this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And thus the Spirit penned this. He prompted and superintended the, the writing of it by those ancient individuals and in many ways has overseen the preservation of it to your day and mine as well. But you may notice it could rightfully then be said, the Spirit is the one who has made available the message of the hour tonight because He wrote 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20. I've asked you to notice a few other verses near the top of that slide. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, when somebody obeys the gospel, they are merely obeying what the Spirit has made available to them. It's not something that a preacher made up. It's not something that someone else authored. That text of 1 Peter 1, verse 22, again reminds us that when one obeys through the Spirit, that which again is available through the Word of God, it might well be noted one final thing would be Romans 15, 19, where there Paul to the Roman congregation pointed out the agency of the Spirit in regard to the message made available to them. But back to the passage before us. May I add one additional thought drawn again from the writings of Peter. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we are told rather carefully and also rather powerfully that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. May I invite you to pause long enough to ponder this. In those years prior to the coming of that flood, we well recall that Noah was building on an ark because God had informed him relative to that, to that mission. But you'll notice he was not only building, he was preaching. Noah was preaching. Wouldn't you have enjoyed hearing some of his sermons? When you've enjoyed hearing what he encouraged upon them in light of what was coming, you see, Noah had been told there was coming a flood. He'd been told about the reality of what was to transpire, and he was told with fervency about exactly the seriousness of it. What messages he must have brought. The text at least reminds us that he was a preacher of righteousness. May I offer to you then this thought? If he was a preacher of righteousness and the Holy Spirit delivers that which is of righteousness, then are we not in position to conclude that what Noah was preaching was consistent with that which the Holy Spirit revealed in that long distant day? And in so doing, when Noah was a preacher of righteousness, we now can appreciate the fullness of our passage. Let's try it again. By which also He went. So the Lord, through the agency of the Spirit, preached to those at that time. And verse 19 says, These spirits in prison, He now tells us exactly who they were. Those that perished in light of that flood of Noah's day. Because verse 20 says, Which sometime were disobedient. That is to say, these were disobedient in the days of Noah. But they did hear preaching, and that preaching they heard was, again, through the agency of the Spirit, the message made available through the Godhead. The interesting feature then of verse number 20 makes this conclusion. 
when once the long suffering of God waited. Now we see when the preaching took place. The preaching took place while God's patience was still in order. They hadn't died yet. When we put the passage together, we seemingly reach this conclusion. Through the agency of the Spirit, evident through the preaching actually taking place through, no, it was Christ preaching through the matter of that moment. The message was to those who hadn't yet died because the flood hadn't yet come. But that verse goes on to say this, while the ark was a preparing. Now we know when the preaching was taking place. Those spirits of whom Peter was writing, though they had long since died, admittedly, and they were then spirits in the prison house of the Hadean realm, while the preaching was done to them, they were alive and well on earth, and they chose to reject the preaching. And they died lost. And in that place and in that status, this text offers no opportunity. The preaching wasn't done to them after they died. The preaching was done to them while they were still alive on earth. And in their rejection of it, they of course died separate from the Lord. And tragically and sadly, there was no other opportunity. The Bible holds out no hope of another opportunity once we pass the scenes of this life. Isn't this a passage then that is sometimes used in a way that is just the opposite? It does not offer hope and encouragement that I'll be preached to after I die. That preaching takes place now. As you and I close that slide, let's transition to the conclusion. We've looked so far tonight at this interesting passage in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and following. And as we have looked upon it, we have first of all found that there are some who use it to teach what contradicts other passages. And we understand that truth will never do that. But a proper interpretation using the grammar of the text tells us when the preaching took place, and it sadly tells us what their reaction to it was. They were disobedient to it. May we be wiser than that. May we, upon examination of our life, recognize that the Lord's precious message of salvation is extended to us now. And while we're in this body, that's the very thing which we'll give account of in the day of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, and that sentiment echoed again in Revelation 22 verse 12. And so as we close this slide, I hope we've each been encouraged to look upon the writings of Peter and use them in a way to motivate us to be faithful, to motivate us to be grounded in the truth and ever mindful of the precious message of the gospel in this life. Would it not be tragic? Would it not be sad to arrive at the day of judgment and to say, I heard many a sermon that prompted me along that line, but I never did anything about it then realizing only then that that was the only opportunity I was ever going to have. Tonight, if you and I find ourselves distant from the Lord, may we in the wisdom of the moment not suppose there's a more convenient day coming. I realize in Acts 24 that Felix hoped for that. May you and I realize that may not come. And certainly once we have closed our eyes in death, there is no other opportunity. We need to die in the Lord. Revelation 14, 13. Tonight, if there would be anyone in this assembly 
that might, upon examination of your life, find the need for a public response to the gospel. We would extend that to you, and we would, with open arms of love, encourage you at this time. The Pippin Church would love to be a part of that which is a source of strength and encouragement and a source of marvelous fidelity to the truth of the Lord. Brother Eddie has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance to anyone who is a wayward child of God, won't you repent of those sins and come back to your first love? Revelation 2.5 If you have never become a member of the blessed body, that family of God, won't you repent of your sins after your belief in Him? Make confession of Jesus as the Lord of your life, as truly the Messiah, the Son of God, and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins. Tonight, we would love to encourage you in that way, and we'd love to help and assist in any way that we can. Won't you let us know how we can while together we stand and while we sing?